Welcome to the New Freedom Church Podcast. This podcast will help you grow deeper in your faith through weekly 30-minute talks. If you haven't already done so, go ahead and hit that subscribe button so you get each new episode as it's released. Now sit back and relax as God speaks to you through this message. We've been focusing on God's presence moving through ancient Israelites and how that he spoke to Moses. And uh, after God instructed Moses at the burning bush to go into Egypt and confront Pharaoh, we see that that resulted in the Passover and then the crossing of the Red Sea. Last time we looked at how Moses had an even greater experience of God's presence when he asked God this question, show me your glory. Will you just give me a glimpse of your glory, of the goodness and the virtue and the hesed, the blessing of God? And with ever-increasing intensity, this has become a plea throughout ages and generations for those who hunger and thirst after God's righteousness in their lives. Moses was granted a place. God said, I'm going to make a place for you right next to me. And when I pass by, you will see my hinder parts. You will see the backside of my glory. And so God hid Moses in a cleft of a rock. But did you know that you and I have the opportunity? We have the privilege that Moses didn't have. We have a vantage point of the glory of God that Moses could only dream of because you and I can observe something of God's glory that Moses only longed to see. The great gospel writer, the apostle John, tells it to us like this. And John 1 and 14 says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory, as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Seeing Jesus, beholding the Lord, looking upon and gazing at Jesus is the glimpse that you and I have of the presence of God. The disciples looked into the very eyes of the Savior. They looked into the eyes of Jesus. They sat at the feet of Jesus. They listened to the teachings and to the thoughts of our master. And last time we saw that Moses caught a glimpse of God's glory, but I want you to see a parallel account in the New Testament of something that would have been far surpassing anything that Moses experienced. And when you do, I want you to get in your mind's eye for just a moment. What would it be like if you only had one book? We are privileged to be able to have libraries of books and we can check them out and we can go online and we can download books and we can have instant access to information, to videos and technology. But in the first century, they didn't have all kinds of books. In fact, most of them couldn't even read. They were given an oral tradition. There was something that was handed down from those who had experienced it before or heard all the stories. And so imagine, if you will, as we read this text, that these early disciples of Jesus had heard all of their lives about the stories that we recounted the last couple of weeks about Moses and the Passover and the Exodus and how God parted the Red Sea and all the wanderings in the wilderness. Imagine, if you would, that that were the stories that you were grown up on, and you would start to embed those stories in your heart, and you would rehearse them during the daytime. But if you had a book, you only had one book, and it was the book of the law. It was all of these stories in written form, or maybe an oral tradition. Imagine with me the parallels, as we read this text here in just a moment, imagine the parallels that you might draw regarding what God gave Moses as an experience, and now what you are experiencing walking with Jesus. How many want to walk with Jesus? Walking with Jesus. 
The Gospel of Mark chapter 6, I don't want to read the first few verses, but I will tell you that there are some things that happens in the sixth chapter of Mark's Gospel that we also see in parallel account with Moses. It opens up on teaching about the Sabbath day. It opens up with with a Sabbath uh, teaching, and we know that this goes all the way back to creation, that God worked six days, and on the seventh day, what did he do? He rested. And that's a pretty good formula for us, is that we cannot continuously uh, run our bodies and run our minds and, and just get out there in life and do, do, do. We are called human beings, not human doings, and we do too much, oftentimes, at our own peril. There's a book that was written many years ago. It was called The Body Keeps the Score. And so if you don't Sabbath, if you don't rest, if you don't recharge yourself, then your body will, will eventually tell you through sickness or through tiredness or through aches and pains, through broken bones or torn muscles or some kind of mishap that you have worked too hard or you've worked too long. And so the sixth chapter of Mark starts off with Jesus on the Sabbath resting, and he's teaching them something about what it means to truly rest. Now, when I say the word rest, most of us think in our minds, well, As an American citizen, we have such a high uh, value on work, and so rest means I just take a little nap. I take a cat nap. Maybe maybe I'll take a a siesta, a little, little afternoon nap, but I have more work to do even on my rest day. I only get one day off a week afterwards, after all, so I need to do some more work on my off day. Sabbath, according to Pastor Tim Keller, is about restoring the diminished. Think about it. Sabbath rest is about restoring the diminished, replenishing the drained, and repairing the broken. It is not a day off. When you rest in the Lord, when you rest with God, there is a ceasing of your labor and your activity and a receiving from the reservoir of heaven of everything that is rejuvenating into your life. When was the last time that you simply sat down and enjoyed in quiet a cup of coffee? When you sat down in quiet and took that bottle of water and you looked out the window and you amazed, looked at the glories of God in creation? When was the last time that you allowed the rest and the presence of God to settle upon your heart without feeling that you have to jump up to a to-do list? This is the kind of rest that Jesus was encountering with his disciples. And when we talk about a Sabbath rest, it is really anything that replenishes, that rejuvenates, that alivens again. It may be going to a ball game to see your child or your grandchild play, and that ball game brings you a rejuvenation. It may be a long walk in the park. It may be something that you go and you, you have a, a great smorgasbord and a wonderful meal. It may be turning on a ball game and, and resting and relaxing in your home. But certainly what Sabbath is, is it is a time that we repair the broken, that we allow for our bodies to catch up with all of our busy mind. And God has embedded and encoded in creation and in our DNA, the desire that we would enter into this kind of rest at least once every seven days. We could do it more often. We could have a Sabbath unto the Lord every single day. You can take a portion of your day and give it as to the Lord to a a time of Sabbath, a time of reflection, a time of rest. And we see that open up as the presence of God is real in their rest. And then Jesus goes on and he says this interesting uh, statement. He says that a prophet is without honor in his own country and amongst his own people. 
And we know that when Jesus came to his hometown, he could not do many miracle there, miracles there, only uh, pray for a, a few sick folk and heal them. But there was this familiarity with Jesus, the carpenter's son. There was this familiarity with his hometown and his own country that, that he realized that there was a, a, um, an impediment for them to receive from him because they knew him so well. And if we're not careful, we can get so familiar with the things of God that we just come in and we do church's routine. We just come in, we sing three songs, we pray a prayer, we listen to a message, and we leave. And we get into this routine where we're familiar with how we do church. We're familiar with how we fellowship, and so it can almost become a tradition for us. Even though we may be in a contemporaryized church, even though we may be in a church that doesn't look like it observes a whole lot of forms and traditions of something that was maybe a hundred years ago, we can still get traditional in our contemporized worship styles. Can I get an amen about that? We can still get a little too familiar with just going through the motions and expecting that things are going to be about the same as they were because Nothing new really ever happens in my life. And so what happens is we get desensitized to the very real presence of God around us. And Jesus said that a prophet is without honor in his own country. This kind of mimics the attitude of Moses' contemporaries that they were highly elated when Moses was leading them through the Red Sea. As long as Moses' hands were lifted in battle, the, they were winning. But as soon as his hands would start to, to fall, the, the battle wouldn't be won. And so they were glad to have Moses in the time of need. But then as soon as they got into the wilderness, they were ready to throw Moses overboard. They were ready to get rid of Moses because they were sick of having quail. They didn't want to have manna every single day. I mean, I like pizza, but I don't want pizza every single day, right? For 40 years, they had this, this, this uh, manna that would fall from heaven, this bread from heaven, this little white coliander seed looking bread that they could eat and they could collect it for the day. But if they kept too much of it, it would rot. They could only have provision for that one day. And Jesus said this, a prophet is without honor in his own country. This kind of would bring back to their remembrance, oh yeah, Moses was a great prophet, yet even the people got familiar with him and they were ready to cast him aside. Verses 30 and 40, uh, through 44 recount to us the feeding of the 5,000, how that God miraculously provided for the people through the breaking of this fish and these loaves and for 5,000, more than 5,000 were fed on that day. And it speaks to us of the provision of God in our lives. Just as he provided manna in the wilderness, so God provided for them. Verse 46 tells us something familiar about Jesus that also happened to Moses. And if you were a first century believer, if you were a Jewish first century uh, convert to Jesus' ministry, you would have had in your mind something that God did for Moses. Look what it says in verse 45 of Mark 6. Immediately, he made his disciples get into a boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he sent the multitudes away. And look at this. And he sent them away and departed to the mountain to pray. Where did Jesus go to pray? He went to the mountain. Where did Moses go to talk with God? Mount Sinai. God brought him all the way up to the top so that they could have a summit. They could have a meeting. They could have a time of fellowship. And God gave Moses great instruction while on the mountain. And so Jesus is now sending the disciples across the, the sea, saying, I'll meet you there on the other side, but I need to go and withdraw to the mountain for a time of prayer. 
And this was reminiscent to them of how that Moses would withdraw himself and he would go to the mountain and receive instruction from God. Now look at verse 47. Now when evening came, the boat was in the middle of the sea and he was alone on land. Then he saw them straining and rowing for the wind was against them. Now the fourth watch of the night came, walking on the sea and he would have passed them by. Look at the the familiarity, the similarities with Moses' story. Jesus is looking out and he's seeing from the land, from the mountain, he's looking and he's seeing his disciples. They're rowing and they're toiling, but they're not getting anywhere because their headstrong wind is against them. The wind is, is blowing them and every time that they would work, they wouldn't make much progress. And so Jesus decides to come down out of the mountain like Moses came down off that mountaintop from the presence of God and went to be with the people. These are, these are parallels that we're seeing overlaying from Old Testament to New Testament. And when they're rowing and they're toiling, it says that they're not making much progress because of the headwinds, because of what is against them. And many times in our Christian experience, we find ourselves working harder, bypassing the rest time, bypassing the study time, bypassing the prayer time, we're just gonna figure it out on ourselves. We've done everything else we can do. And then finally, we come to a place and realize, maybe I should pray now. No, why don't we just flip the script? Why don't we pray first? And then we'll try everything else we can. But the disciples, they were rowing and they were toiling and they weren't getting anywhere. Have you ever felt in life that there are times where you work harder and you don't even make as much progress as when you just let it happen? Amen. You know, that's the difference in trusting God or trusting the arm of the flesh. One of the most frustrating pieces of Christian discipleship is when we try to produce fruit for the kingdom of God. When you and I try to produce fruit, we get frustrated, we get agitated, we get irritated because we will never see the kind of results from our production that we think we should have. We have these markers and these guidelines, these, these uh, goals that we want to reach. And I'm all for goal setting, and that's great. But when we put out these artificial goals of trying to, well, if I just read three chapters a day, then God will be happy with me, and I'll pray uh, five minutes over here, and then I'll go to church, and I'll attend that Bible study. It's all of our doing. Nothing is wrong with any of those things if done in the right spirit. But when we're rowing and we're toiling and we're not getting anywhere, nothing is more frustrating than trying to produce on our own. Jesus told us in John chapter 15, this, this great instruction about the vine and the branches. You remember what Jesus said is that I am the vine, you are the branches. What is the job of a branch on a tree? Is it the job of the branch to produce fruit? No, it is not the job of the branch to produce fruit. It is the job of the branch to bear fruit, to simply allow it to rest upon the branch's arms. That branch can never produce fruit. Just like you can never in your own abilities, your own disciplines, your own regiment, you can never produce something for the kingdom of God. But what you can do is you can be a fruit bearer. You can allow the fruit of the spirit to grow on your branch. You can allow yourself to stay in the presence of God connected to the vine so that the life flow of God is coming through you all of the time and then the production is not of use. Therefore, lest you should boast of your good works, you were saved by faith through grace, not by works, lest anyone should boast. We can't boast about it. God's salvation is a free gift to us. We didn't do anything to produce it. We may have 
have been in the right place at the right time to hear the message at a young age, but some of us, we didn't hear it at a young age, or if we did, we didn't receive it at a young age. How many thank God for second chances? I'm thanking God for like 150th chances in my life, amen? I mean, I didn't receive the gospel the first time I heard it. I didn't say yes to Jesus the first time that someone told me about Jesus. It took another attempt and another try and another thing. And so what happens is finally, if you would get connected to the life source, if you stay connected to the vine, you don't have to worry about toiling and working it in your own uh, right, in your own abilities. God is the one that produces. He is the one that produces the fruit. And it says that he came to them at the third watch of the night, walking on the sea and would have passed them by. This is again, another, another remembrance illustration of God passing by Moses on the mountain. In verse 49, and when, he, and when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed it was a ghost and cried out for they all saw him and were troubled. But immediately he talked with them and said to them, be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. Then he went up into the boat with them and the wind ceased. What happened when the presence of Jesus came into the boat? The wind ceased. And they were greatly amazed at themselves beyond measure, and they marveled. Jesus was in the boat. The impediment that was causing them not to make any progress had stopped, but they were still on the sea. We don't know what the condition of the waves were, but Jesus was right there they were in the presence of God. And verse 52 says, for they had not understood about the loaves because their heart was hardened. Do you realize that you and I can see with our very natural eyes the miraculous work of God, a miracle being performed right before us, and yet it cannot always penetrate the hardness of our heart. These skeptical lenses that we wear on our eyes, the eyes of our heart when we have taken the hard knocks of life and when we have been battered and we have gone through experiences of people letting us down and failures in our lives, we can start to grow calloused in our heart. Even being close to the things of God, we may not truly enter in by faith to embrace the things of God. It says that their hearts were hardened. They didn't understand the provision talking about the loaves and the fish, they didn't understand the provision of God. They were working to get something through their own merit, through their own intellect, through their own talent, through their own abilities that they were never going to be satisfied with and actually they were never going to achieve because of what was against them. It says that he would have passed them by just like God passed by when Moses was in the cleft of the rock but he came in and he got into their boat. This is like a, a recap of a, a, a mystery story. Everybody like a good mystery. I, I like good mysteries that you can't figure out, but there's a twist. Like you get to the end and you realize, oh, there's a twist. Uh, I like the ones that when they get to the end of the story, it's like the whodunit kind of murder mysteries murder on the Orient Express or something like that, really fast paced and exciting. And throughout the movie, they, they almost implicate every character and you see how every person looks a little shady and shifty, that anybody could have done the act. Anyone could have made this right case for the murder. And then they get to the end of the story and they start to replay for you and you see the clues. 
And right before they reveal who the real murderer is, you say, oh, I've got it figured out now. How do you have it figured out? Because I've now seen in retrospect all of the droppings of clues that I should have picked up while I'm watching the story. The disciples now, as Jesus is in the boat, they're thinking back about all of the teaching, the oral tradition, the only book they have ever heard studied and read in their hearing. They've heard about Moses and now one greater than Moses is in their midst. And they're thinking about all of the encounters of God's people as Moses was their pastor for 40 years. And now Jesus is their rabbi, their pastor, their teacher. And they're starting to see the clues in real time. They're starting to see in retrospect how God is working in their lives by bringing them this glimpse of Jesus. It says when Jesus got into the boat, that something changed in the environment. They were changed by his presence. The very presence of Jesus will change a room. The very presence of Jesus changes something in the circumstance, in the mindset, and in the outlook. Not everything about what you're going through may change, but when Jesus gets present, you change. And when you change, the externals, they don't have to change. He never promised us in this world we will just go skipping along and never have problems. He said, in this world, you will have, what did he say? Tribulation, trouble, testings, and trials. In this world, you will have these things. But be of good cheer, for he has already overcome. So in the midst of any kind of life controversy, adversity, we know that the presence of Jesus changes things. Jesus in the boat means God has come to have a place beside you. For Moses, God told Moses, I have a place for you, come to my side. Jesus, a one greater than Moses, is now in the boat with the disciples. And this is a theme that we see all throughout scripture, but we can miss it because sometimes we take a verse and we make it our foundational verse and we kind of ignore all of the preceding and upleading things to that point. To give you an example. We know that the scriptures tell us that we should seek, we should knock, and then we're gonna find. So seeking is important. Asking is important. Knocking is important. And we take a verse like that and we think it's all about our activity towards pressing into God. Yet, when we look at the scriptures all the way back to the garden, what does it say happened in the cool of the day that God came seeking, God came looking and saying, Adam, where are you? Eve, where are you? God was the seeker. When it came time for Abraham, the great father of the faith, to go and venture out in a, in a possession of a land that he didn't know where he was going to go, it was God that came in a theophany in an angel, angelic visit to Abraham and gave him an instruction. There is, in this thing of faith, a balance between our seeking and God seeking. And here's what I'll tell you. God is a seeker. God is looking. God is surveying the land. His eyes are to and fro upon the land looking for someone whom he might find would incline themselves to him. Jacob had a dilemma and he was going to go and confront his brother whom he had wronged. And we see that an angel came and visited with Jacob and the angel 
wrestled with Jacob and he wrestled with the angel until the break of dawn. God came seeking him. And at the incarnation, we just celebrated it a few weeks ago at Christmas time. We celebrate every year the great birth of our Savior. What was this? This was God coming to seek and to save that which was lost. We had lost dominion. We had lost authority. We had lost our way. And he came to make that right again. God is a great seeker. So yes, you can seek God. But do you know that today God is seeking you? God wants to be found with and amongst you. Look at verse 53. It says, and when they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret and they anchored there. And when they came out of the boat, immediately the people recognized him, ran through the whole surrounding region and began to carry about beds of those who were sick to whomever they heard, wherever he was. Wherever he entered into the villages, cities, and country, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and begged him that they might just touch the hem of his garment. And as many as touched him were made well. Once you are exposed, once you have an encounter with the presence of God, then you are compelled to share it. Look what happens. They land and even the townspeople, when they saw Jesus come off the ship, they had a faith that rose up in them that maybe perchance what he's done for others, he can do for me. And it says that they brought the sick out on their beds and they laid them in the streets. They wanted the sick and the afflicted, those who had no other options of healing. They wanted them to have a close encounter with Jesus. Because once exposed to the presence of God, you're compelled to share it with others. You're compelled to want others to know. Think about it like this. If you had an insider tip on a sure to profit investment, wouldn't you want to share that with some people that you know would want to invest and people that you would know would want to be involved in that? Or would you just keep it to yourself? What if you had the information for a medical breakthrough to heal something like cancer or a broken heart. You know, a broken heart isn't something that we can see. We can't go in and, and surgically fix a broken heart of life circumstances that come. But what if you had the remedy that you could heal a broken heart? Would you keep that to yourself? Or would you be compelled to want to share that with others? Well, that's what the gospel is. The good news is this kind of remedy. And you want to share it with others. You're compelled to share it with others because grateful people blessed by God can't help but share it with other people. This is why every one of us are called to do the work of an evangelist. Not everybody's called to be an evangelist, but every one of us is called to do the work of an evangelist. And what does an evangelist do? They publish, proclaim, and broadcast all God has done for them. So many people won't share their testimony. They won't share uh, their faith with others because they, they feel like in their minds they're not good enough to or they don't know enough Bible verses. Can't tell you how many times someone has, has sent me an email saying, Pastor, will you talk to my loved one? Will you talk to my friend? Well, why don't you talk to them? <laughs> why don't you tell them what God has done? You don't need to know the Romans road and four spiritual laws and all the, the Bible verses that the pastor knows. All you need to do is you need to tell them what God has done in your life. Amen. Testify to his goodness. Share with them the change that has taken place as a result of you saying yes, that you will follow this Messiah, Jesus. 
Now, the scriptures tell us that as they were brought out and they were laid into the streets, that as many who reached out by faith to touch him, they were healed. Now, there were two types of touches that they were looking at. It would have been customary in Jesus' day to wear something like a prayer shawl. He was a rabbi, and so he would have wore a garment like this. And this is a prayer shawl, a tallit. And on every tallit, there are four corners, and on every corner there is a tassel, a seat seat. And on these tassels, there are knots. And so as they would walk these tassels, hymns, this would be considered the hem of his garment, these hymns would be something that the rabbi would reach down and would grab and, and could hold on to these. And as they would hold on to them, they would feel the knots, and there's five of them, and they represented the law. They represented Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and Numbers. They represented the Pentateuch, the law of God, where we get the great learning of, from creation all the way through God's miraculous works with Israel. And it says here that as they would bring them out and they would lay them at the town place right there on the street, that some of them, if they could just reach out and touch the hem of his garment. Do you remember the woman who had the issue of blood that she, cried, she uh, was, was uh, crawling through the crowd and she but touched the hem of his garment? This is what she touched. She touched the seat seat. And when she did, the virtue of Jesus flowed through her and she was healed from an infirmity that she'd had for over 14 years. She'd gone to every doctor. No one could have any kind of effect on her condition, but when she touched the hem of Jesus' garment, she was healed. No doubt these people had heard of that story and some of them said, you know what? I will settle for just a touch of the hem of Jesus' garment because I know that he healed that woman through the hem of his garment. And if by faith I can just touch that, then I will be made whole. But look at what the scripture says here. See, we have to read the word. We have to really dissect and see what the word of God says. God is not opposed to working in the same way as he's worked in the past, but here's what I know about God. He is not relegated to have to work in the past the way he has worked. He can work in the future in a brand new way. And it says this, some were content to reach out and touch the hem of his garment, but everyone who reached out to touch him were healed. Now, physical healing is real. It's in the Bible. It's, it's something that can be appropriated according to the word of God. But here's what I know. Not every person that I've ever prayed for has been physically healed. And there were even people that Jesus prayed for, especially in his hometown where he had not honor. He couldn't heal a whole lot of sick people there. But I do know this. Every person who ever found themselves in the presence of Jesus were changed. And healing is more than just what we can see on the outside. Healing is way more than just a physical infirmity being made different than it was or feeling a little bit better. Healing sometimes is not even visible with the naked eye, it's on the inside. Because so much of our brokenness is not anything that we can display on the outside, but it's in here. It's in here. And it says that as many as touched him were healed. Do you need some healing in your life today? Do you need to get into the presence of God and touch Jesus today? Maybe you're not content just to touch the hem of his garment like someone else and receive something of a testimony that you heard someone else. Maybe you are one that wants to press in and be connected to that vine. You wanna be connected to the life source of God through the presence of Jesus. And you want that life, that Zoe life, 
to flow through you and you are compelled to tell others about it with heads bowed and no one looking around. This is between you and God right now. I wonder as they get ready to close in prayer, they're gonna sing a song. I wonder how many would say, yes, I want to touch Jesus and I wanna be touched by him. If that's you today, then I'm gonna encourage you to do something. I'm gonna encourage you to meet me down here. Some have asked for prayer, special prayer today. I wanna do that right here. If you have a special need in your life and you have a, a desire to connect with the very real presence of God, you wanna push through tradition, you wanna get past all of the headwinds that are flowing your way, you've been rowing, you've been toiling and you're not making any progress, today is your day.